Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And, uh, yeah, it's been over two weeks since we were last here together in the salon, and I wish I could tell the whole involved story of what has kept me away, but it really isn't all that interesting, and so uh, I'll spare you and just say that uh, I think things will be getting back to normal now, and so uh, I hope to be more regular about getting a new program out to you each week. But uh, even though I wasn't here for the past couple of weeks, uh, some of our fellow saloners kept the flame burning and uh, the servers humming by uh, sending donations to help with the expenses associated with these podcasts. And those fine souls are Brian R., Sean G., Shane N., Chris A., our regular monthly donor, Mark C., Chris T., and uh, a friend of the salon who I'll just call the Shadow. (laughs) So, uh, Brian, Sean, Shane, both Chris's, Mark, and Shadow, hey, thank you ever so much. I uh, really appreciate your help. And uh, one other thank you that I'll save to explain in more detail at the end of this podcast goes out to our good friend Bruce Damer, who has uh, backed up the entire collection of podcasts uh, from the salon onto the Internet Archive. And uh, I'll explain about that uh, after we first hear today's program. And I'm uh, very pleased to say that the talk we're about to hear also comes from one of our fellow saloners, Dr. Cameron Adams, who uh, is with the School of Anthropology and Conservation at the University of Kent in the UK. This talk was uh, given at a meeting of the Student Psychedelic Society on the 20th of October of this year, and uh, that's 2010 in case you uh, haven't been keeping up with such things. The talk is titled, How Do Psychedelics Heal? And uh, as I mentioned in my last podcast, the first two minutes or so were cut off, but They were only the uh, very basic introductory remarks that uh, psychedelics have been used in the context of healing for a very long time. So uh, now let's uh, join Cameron and the Student Psychedelic Society at the University of Kent. Uh, Those traditions use, in some cases, psychedelic medicines or psychedelics as medicinal uh, products or uh, substances. And, um, in fact, even at some point in the U.S. and in Europe, psychedelics were used for medicinal uh, purposes up until the early 60s. Uh, And then things started breaking down at that point. At that point, it goes into the point of the perspective of sin. Uh, We shall not do these drugs uh, for various reasons, uh, and a lot of people will argue uh, as to why. Is it about public health? Is it about control? Is it because people started seeing through the veils of illusion that the masters wanted us not to see through? Uh, But it became something of a sin. Now, if it were not a sin, the arguments don't really uh, hold up. It's not scientifically... uh, Reasonable from a public health perspective to make psychedelics illegal. Uh, very few people die um, using them. Very few people have uh, problems compared to the population that uses them. 
If those, uh, if it was about public health, uh, those same rates of uh, danger, actually much more dangerous aspects of driving would be illegal, and bathrooms would be illegal. More people die in bathrooms every year uh, than do from terrorism. So uh, you slip, crack your head. Uh, the place is hard everywhere. So it's not necessarily about public health. So there is a moral aspect to it. Um, so that's as much as I'm going to say about that. What this talk here will be about coming back into medicine and uh, what that might mean. And again, like I said, as I don't have any real uh, density of emic perspectives, I have to leave that out. So this is the theoretical stuff about that. Now, I'm going to start with something. I'm going to throw out some really funky terms throughout this. I will make every effort to explain them. If I don't and something's crazy, stop me. You know, I'm not here to just preach at you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please do stop me and I'll, I'll explain myself. So the first thing I'm going to throw at you is something called biological citizenship. Um, this is a concept by a, a couple of authors, Rose and Novus, but that citizenship is something we engage in. And uh, to be a proper member of a society, we should engage in these things, much like, uh, for instance, uh, at least be able to speak some English in the UK to function here and work. Not necessarily, but that's the idea of citizenship, pay taxes, etc., well, there is this idea of biological citizenship, and um, it's come about because biology has ceased to be something fateful or maybe something you can worry about. But we've gotten to the point where it, biology is knowable, mutable, improvable, and manipulable. Plastic surgery, uh, you can have your genes tested for things... Uh, various uh, uh, diseases. Uh, if you have a family history of breast cancer, for instance, I read a recent article about a woman who just had her breast cut off because her mom had breast cancer. She didn't even want to wait to find out if she did. Uh, these types of things can happen, and it comes right down into the birth process where pregnant women are regularly tested for genetic disease or for genetic diseases of the offspring and are expected to make a choice about whether or not to go to term if they have something like Down syndrome. And so we are becoming engaged in our biology and we are expected to become engaged in our biology in a particular way. Now, this leads to something known or by, written by these guys, Rosanovas, a, a political economy of hope. Because things can be changed, you're not at the whims of biology. And this political economy of hope leads to our need to become the activists in biological processes. It's not just scientists studying these things, but those of us with particular diseases need to become involved, uh, raise money for research, for instance. Uh, but unfortunately, this biological citizenship leads to a situation where you become obsessed with whatever disease you may have at all times. And so on the good days, you're still thinking about it because you're out being an activist, maybe raising money for research or counseling others with such diseases, cancer, uh, uh, more deadly diseases. This is more typical. Uh, but you become constantly engaged in the act of being ill. So your identity becomes... <clears throat> a sick person from the beginning of it. 
Um, now this is going to make more sense a little later in the talk why I brought this up, but this is something that we need to understand about modern uh, uh, global society and uh, health. Now, within this context, we start seeing an emergence of the reuse of uh, medicinal psychedelics. And the most salient one that people talk about as a medicine is ayahuasca. And I, I don't want to limit it to ayahuasca, but this is what we have most stuff about psychedelic as a medicine from a user's point of view. Now, Schmid uh, et al., in an article that came out just this year, start making the claim that although referred as a medicine, ayahuasca is clearly not used as an ordinary pharmacological medicament. Instead, medicine alluded to more holistic concepts of being a sacrament or a healing plant. So they're, they're drawing from, say, Native American traditions in these concepts. And in their study, in fact, people said it might heal you and it might not. And it's sort of unpredictable whether this will happen. Now, they claim that we shouldn't even think of ayahuasca as a pharmaceutical, the authors do, as a pharmaceutical uh, substance, but a psychological catalyst, um, which unfolds within fields of sociocultural ideas, real fancy work that says, it's a psychological thing, it's because we expect it to work in a way, set and setting, uh, some of the ideas of set and setting in psychedelic use. That um, the, the uh, ayahuasca enhanced their emotional and mental states, <coughs> so they could understand their illness, they could see it, and, and this is more of a uh, Carlos Castaneda seeing as opposed to looking uh, type of uh, concept. Um, and that the uh, uh, psychedelic influenced them in making positive changes in their life, which may, uh, uh, which helped them get through the illness or the disease process. And um, so that was that uh, study, and this is where a lot of psychedelic medicine seems to be, or, or the ideas of psychedelic medicine seems to be playing out. And as an example, some of you might have seen this, uh, uh, maybe, I, I don't think most of you have, by, is my guess, but it's a, a woman by the name of Pam Sakuda who uh, took part in the Hefter Institute psilocybin uh, stage four end-of-life cancer anxiety experiment. And she talks about how the psilocybin had helped her. And she's very uh, eloquent about it, and it's uh, fairly moving. And it talks about it. It shows this idea of a sacramental healing, um, a sociocultural type healing. It's just a diagnosis, but this was indeed metastatic stage four cancer. Um, you realize that this is terminal, and that um, this is basically what is going to kill you. Um, and the general prognosis or the curve on this was, wasn't very long. So you start to wonder what's going to happen and, and your, your emotional state and your mental state totally turns upside down. You, you no longer have this life ahead of you that you've planned for. Um, all of a sudden you have a very finite and possibly very short time left. So. You're very anxious about the fact that even though right now, you know, you've just had the surgery, you're under chemotherapy, and you're kind of feeling okay, you, you know that something's going to happen soon, and you don't know how that you're going to feel. You don't know what part of the body this is going to come back in. You don't know how physically you're going to feel. 
and you don't know how limited your capabilities are going to become, you don't know how much pain you're going to have, um, and so it becomes a very negative emotional set where you're basically living in fear. Um, unfortunately, that fear can be to an extent that it paralyzes the, the good life that you're living at the moment while you're still healthy, while you're not sure, well, when is it going to come back? Where is it going to come back? What's going to happen to me? How is my family going to be able to deal with it? How, what are they going to have to do to help me and support me? Because my husband is a, is a dear, we've been together for, married for 28 years and known each other for 36. And, He's so supportive and loving that I knew this was an enormous amount of pain for him. There was the guilt of being the source of that pain, as well as all of my own fear. And um, it becomes almost overwhelming, where you, you, like I said, it infringes upon the time that you're enjoying. So, crippled by this fear and, and this guilt about infringing on other people's emotions and lives and having a conflict of heart, all of a sudden long-term plans meant nothing. You couldn't make any plans further than a week's. Who knows? Who knew what was going to happen? Um, and so I, I was hoping that this study would help, um, and also with the support of the psychiatric team, would allow me to deal with some of that, to clear it up a little, to to find a way to achieve a level of, of peace within myself and, and thinking about it. And you, you start to just, your emotions overwhelm you. And, um, so as as this session began and, and as it built up, I, I felt this, this lump of, of emotions rolling up and forming almost like a, an entity. And, um, I started to cry a little and just to start to feel all, it was almost like everything was concentrated a little and then up, rolling up and then it started to dissipate and I started to look at it differently and I think that's the beauty of having, being able to expand your consciousness, change the way you're feeling about things, open, I don't think the drug is is the cause of these things. I think it's a catalyst that allows you to release your own thoughts and feelings from someplace that you've, you've bound them very tightly. And so it allows you to, to open your own mind and your consciousness and release other feelings, explore other ways you might feel about these things. And I began to realize that all of this negative fear and the guilt was was such a, a hindrance to the actual positive part of making the most of and enjoying the healthy time that I'm having, that I, and however long it may be, that I was basically not utilizing it to the best and enjoying my life because I was so afraid of what wasn't there yet. And so I had the opportunity in this altered state of mind think about how if I could just let go of that and not focus so much on being afraid of what wasn't here today, that I could live more in for today, in the here and now, in the present, and enjoy the, 
the time that I had and, and take it as a gift. But it was something um, that was so precious and, and that um, it didn't deserve to be clouded by, by these fears. That there would be plenty of time to be uh, worried about it and to be afraid when something really happened, when, when the disease manifested itself again. So, I mean, it's clear that uh, it's done her some good. And she is able to deal, like I said, with ayahuasca stuff, with the process uh, of her um, illness, of her disease, in a way that allowed her to go through with her life and not be, like I said, with the biological citizenship stuff. She wasn't dying every day of the rest of her life. She was going to try to live every day of the rest of her life. And so she's at this point where she can say, I'm not going to go out there trying to find a cure for cancer anymore. I'm going to just live and spend time with my family. I don't have to be sick every day until I'm dead. Um, And this is similar. uh, There's other uh, studies going on at MAPS, uh, or MAPS website lists a bunch of them. Uh, Just quickly... um, a list of them, MDMA is being used for psychotherapy, cancer, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, LSD for psychotherapy, cluster headaches, end-of-life anxiety, ayahuasca for substance abuse, hopelessness, and panic, Ibogaine for substance abuse, ketamine for therapy and addiction, LSA for cluster headaches. Uh, LSA is a, a very similar to LSD. It, it comes in a, a few plants. Um, and psilocybin, uh, cluster headaches, end-of-life anxiety, nicotine addiction, and OCD. Now, if you look at that list, listen to that list, I said it really quite rapidly, but what you see is it's a lot of sort of essentially behavioral, uh, psychological type issues that people are um, using these things for, with the absence, uh, perhaps, of cluster headaches. Um, And uh, this is telling of how we've approached these medicines, and uh, part of it is, and the reason there's a lot of sort of end-of-life stuff and addiction stuff is that the research population has been people that are already at heavy risk. Why are we giving psilocybin only to people that are guaranteed to die on their cancer um, as opposed to somebody earlier? Well, it's because nobody knows how safe it is or what it's going to do to individuals over the course of their life to have had these experiences. A lot of experiments start this way. Um, And I'm going to read this a little bit. Uh, I don't think I really have to. Uh, It's from my other article. But basically, it's establishing, um, science has established that um, psychedelics are physically, I'm talking uh, the the, the, uh, standard um, or classic psychedelics, tryptamine psychedelics, are um, exceedingly safe biologically. Uh, and uh, your body processes them very quickly, and a lot of what goes on seems to be your brain is sending its own chemicals just in the wrong way uh, or in a different way. And so, uh, for instance, LSD, which lasts some 12 hours, is out of your system in a few minutes. Uh, Clearly, it's not the LSD actually doing it to you. Uh, But so they're biologically safe, um, far safer than alcohol, Alcohol, 10 times the active dose, uh, will kill 50% of the people who take it. And um, something like uh, a mescaline, which is the most dangerous uh, classic psychedelic, 
is a uh, 24 times. And uh, so that's two and a half times safer than alcohol. And uh, it doesn't even compare to things like uh, DMT, psilocybin, and LSD, which have only been predicted to be between one and 5,000 times the active dose. Uh, nobody's going to take that um, unless you're uh, Sid Barrett, apparently. But he lived. Um, now, one of the other questions is, okay, so it's biologically safe. Fine. Is it psychologically safe? Does it make you crazy? And uh, study been done, or studies have been done with uh, long-term ayahuasca users and long-term peyote users in the um, various uh, religious sacrament use of these drugs. And uh, it looks really quite safe, uh, something out of, uh, out of the mescaline use data, or uh, peyote use data, one in 40,000 trips even just goes bad. That's a pretty good record. Um, and uh, uh, schizophrenics do not have a heightened um, ex or a, a presentation of schizophrenia. In fact, it seems to calm it down. Uh, <coughs> folks in the uh, um, Santo Daime uh, who use ayahuasca regularly seem to have more serotonin receptors, and they, uh, through various psychological measures, look like they're much more stable than the regular population, the non-users, and uh, less uh, perturbed by changes in the system. They don't get freaked out when things change. They can handle it. They're really smooth. They're kind of like Zen priests. Uh, maybe not quite all the way down there, but they're very relaxed and able to deal with this. Now, um, The abuse potential of them is another question. Okay, you start taking it, will you keep taking it? And uh, this looks actually quite low. There is a, a initiation phase where people tend to take a, quite a bit of it. But then uh, use of uh, the classic psychedelics <coughs> tends to wane off and is used a, a couple of times a year. It's nothing like you know you would do with heroin, you know, a couple times a day or whatever, because you have that craving. You don't have a craving. In fact, they don't really work except for uh, DMT. I think, um, but they, most of them tend not to work very well if you take them too often anyway, so that's a self-built-in uh, anti-abuse um, uh, potential aspect of them. And then, of course, you get caught with the question of what is actually abuse, and that is a socially defined concept. So, yeah, you can say if you use it more than once, you're abusing it, and a lot of people will. Uh, but in terms of a biomedical abuse... Uh, of addictive type reactions, it's simply not uh, likely. And, uh, okay, so, it looks like it's safe, and it looks like it does this sort of great psych uh, psychological type stuff, and I've been using a couple of concepts here interchangeably, um, and I've purposefully sort of done it this way. Disease and illness, uh, they're not the same <coughs> thing. Um, a lot of people think they are. Uh, and they certainly do overlap quite a bit. Uh, but they are not the same thing. And uh, a fantastic sort of idea of understanding where they come from is this guy Cassell who says, illness is what the patient feels when he goes to the doctor, and disease is what he goes away from the doctor, what he goes home with. Illness is your signs, the symptoms, and how you feel about what's going on with you. And a disease is a biological problem, an organ functioning improperly, uh, uh, 
various uh, uh, injury, whatnot, uh, uh, pathogens. So, like I said, they tend to overlap at a quite a, a high level, but they don't. Uh, they're not the same thing. And you can have diseases without having any illness whatsoever. The classic is asymptomatic high blood pressure. You don't feel sick. You don't know you're sick, and the doctor says, you have high blood pressure, you've got to take this pill. You've got a disease with no illness. When you get an illness, the minute the doctor tells you this, and you start worrying about your drug regime. You can also have uh, uh, illnesses without diseases. Uh, hypochondriacs are a classic example of that. Um, and so one is social. Illnesses are social, whereas diseases are biological. And like I said, they tend to overlap. Now, if we review what we were talking about with these other types of um, or the uh, uh, studies of psychedelic medicine, in particular Pam Sakuda's stuff and the stuff I said about ayahuasca earlier, we're looking at something that is affecting illness in these contexts as opposed to disease. So somebody might say, fine and dandy, Pam Sakuda feels better about dying, but she's still dying. It's not medicine. But her quality of life has changed. And healing has a lot to do with that as well. And so I would say that psilocybin trip actually cured her of the illness of dying, even though she will die one day, very soon. She's probably dead now. And so it's really important to keep this in mind when understanding the idea of psychedelic medicine, uh, especially as we're starting to engage with it. And there is a sense that psychological problems often have uh, illness, much more of an illness factor than a biological factor, though people are starting to investigate more and more uh, biological factors of psychedelic or psychological um, issues. Now, the other video I wanted to show you, and that's going to be harder to find, um, <coughs> it's really just to establish this idea of illness and disease, and I'll describe it because I'm, it's going to take me a little while to get it. This is the plan. It's this woman named Michelle Rainey who's um, a very strong uh, medical marijuana advocate. And uh, she has uh, recently been uh, diagnosed stage four with her uh, melanoma, which is metastasized. And she's very strongly talking about the cannabis will cure my cancer. She's working in a very biomedical model looking at it to cure a disease. But she says very clearly, I don't feel sick. I feel great. I'm healthy. I'm eating organic food. I'm, I'm doing great. But the doctor tells me this. And... So this is sort of, again, that illness versus disease, but she's looking at this as a, or looking for something to cure the disease, as opposed to simply looking at something to cure the illness, um, which is understandable, of course, right? Nobody wants to die. Well, not nobody. But are these things as unrelated in therapy as they are in terms of uh, our perceptions of these processes. Do they just overlap, or is therapy uh, useful? Well, in terms of the psilocybin study, they are working on getting a grant to redo the study for people in earlier stages of cancer because they think the lifestyle changes might actually make a strong um, difference in the disease prognosis just by eating better, getting exercise, going outside, um, smiling and laughing every once in a while. But there might be more to it than that. 
And uh, Sullivan and Hagen came out with an article in 2002. It's a pretty old uh, article in a, a uh, whole journal on evolutionary aspects of addiction. And these guys come up with an exceedingly radical idea. Most addiction people look at addictions as exposure to something new that affects us or we respond to with biologically um, programmed behaviors from evolutionary processes. So we have this reward idea in our wired in our brain. If it works for you, it makes you feel good, you do it again, which has something to do with eating you know, high-quality foods, um, uh, sugars, whatnot. And we, we see how this, this idea that if you eat too much sugar, it's because that craving for sugar is out of whack with our ability to get sugar, which was rarer in the environment in our evolutionary past. It's the same thing with drugs is the typical idea about uh, addiction research. It hits this reward center, but you know we didn't have heroin when we were you know Australopithecines walking through the savanna, you know. Uh, so it knocks the whole thing out of whack. Well, these guys said, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Maybe for some things, but probably not psychedelics. They grow. You can eat them. And so we will probably have been exposed to them for a very long time. Now, um, Terence McKenna has talked about this as the stoned ape hypothesis, <coughs> how we became brainy uh, apes that learned language and stuff. He actually, I heard a talk where he attributed it to his brother Dennis, who probably just, because of his scientific, said, hey, Terence, what about this idea? Terence ran with it because he couldn't publish it. Um, but... Uh, that's you know one guy, and these guys say something to that effect, but a little bit more carefully thought out. And the idea is that drugs as food is not necessarily a metaphor in this context. If you go everywhere in the world, not everywhere, but most places in the world, it's not us in our particular worldview. Um, does talk about medicine as food, and they prepare them as food. These are stuff you get you know from the garden. It's not a pill. It's not a, an injection. Uh, the traditional medicines, and they are mo uh, made into their foods. And in fact, a lot of the stuff we eat is medicinal. And we don't even think about it. Garlic, basil, um, many of the herbs we eat have medicinal properties. And we're probably taking low doses of these medicinal things that are quite helpful to us in our diet. And there are arguments out there that spices, the use of uh, spices evolved in hot climates because you're more likely to have... Um, bacteria and, uh, what are they called, parasites, and so these spices help get rid of them. Uh, and in cold environments, you didn't really need that. But of course, there's also the problem that spices grow in those hot environments, so that's a little bit funky. These guys say that drugs as food uh, is not really crazy. In fact, uh, Balak and Cox note that calcium, <coughs> phosphorus, iron, vitamins A, B2, and E, and 100 grams of Bolivian coca leaf exceed the daily recommended U.S. dietary allowances. This stuff, coca leaf, is really, really, really good for you. This happens to also have cocaine in it. Um, now, cat contains vitamin C, 150 milligrams per 100 grams of fresh leaf, trace amounts of thiamine, niacin, riboflavin, carotene, has iron, amino acids, and uh, many alkaloids are based chemically on tryptophan or tyrosine, which are proteins that we need. 
and become available after we eat them. Now, we need foods. The reason we need to eat, there's a lot of stuff that we don't make ourselves, and that's part of the recommended daily analysis of vitamins and uh, uh, amino acids. These are things you have to get from outside of yourself. Your body doesn't produce them on their own. And there are neurotransmitters that require these exogenous, means outside the body, sources of uh, these nutrients to synthesize themselves in our brain. Our neurotransmitters don't just build themselves, and they require a lot of nutrition, a lot of food. Now, what better way to get it, instead of eating outrageous amounts of eggs and beef and you know these wild foods that were really hard to get than to take something that is a neurotransmitter essentially and breaks down into its constituent parts. Uh, psilocybin, very similar to serotonin. Uh, come, you know, all these things look just like serotonin and they can be metabolized into the building blocks for those things. And also while they're acting in our minds or in our brains, we don't need our own. And this is a major, major issue in evolution. If the nutritional, or energetic and nutritional um, intake exceeds what you need, you do a little bit better. For example, it doesn't take a lot either. For example, uh, walking bipedally, like we do, seems to have saved our ancestors one little package of McVitie's digestive biscuits worth of calories in a year. And that was enough to make it more valuable to our ancestors, made them more likely to reproduce, get food, uh, be healthy, than their four-legged friends. It saved this energy, but not very much, but it was enough to make a difference over the scale of millions of years. Now, taking exogenous neurotransmitters would be the same sort of caloric and a nutritional uh, uh, change and difference. So when we happen to be a little bit down on them, as other food cravings come from lack, we would crave these things that we knew were in the environment. Any ape out there that ate a few mushrooms would know that they do something and their body would know um, what that felt like in them. Now, the... So depletion of these neurotransmitters would uh, lead to the craving. And uh, in particular, stress chews these things up. It just burns your neurotransmitters up. And so it's not just lack of neurotransmitters, but it's which actually act as the buffer to stress, and we're chewing them up, but that stress also starts breaking down the body. And so we're looking at something that might be primarily illness-based, but due to this nutritional need and the idea that stressors deplete these things, taking of psychedelics may produce a buffer zone to help us deal with stress and the stress-based illnesses or diseases, in fact, that um, not having them won't. And you look at this, and the types of uh, uh, disease processes that they seem really good for are depression, which is a stress-based uh, neurotransmitter uh, depletion type scenario, uh, bipolar disease, um, a whole series of these things. And this was just a, a 
a, a theory or an idea based in um, you know just uh, evolutionary thought, and they wanted to start with they were out there and we were exposed <laughs> to them. So how can we say it's maladaptive or bizarre? And I really like this little package of information, but uh, it starts bleeding in those areas of illness and disease and biological versus psychological processes in a kind of interleaved and interwoven way that's really quite interesting. And when we start looking at other things that are similar, slightly different, a lot of the stuff that psychedelics are good for and and (coughs) are things that cannabis are good for, or cannabis is good for, and it turns out are quite the same things that omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids are particularly good for. Um, and it turns out that, um, let me sort of show you how I put this together. Uh, Timothy Leary, um, in 99, it was a 35, 34 year follow-up, so 98765, did an experiment (coughs) with giving psilocybin to, uh, criminals in jail, uh, to try to see if it reduced their recidivism rates. And when they published their data six months later, which isn't a very long time to check for recidivism, but the rates were significantly lower than that of the regular prison population. Yeah. Recidivism, that means uh, recommitting crimes, uh, uh, being a bad guy again. And most of the people who went back were just violating parole as opposed to doing new crimes. And so... But over time, these numbers seem to fall down, and in the 34-year follow-up, it looks like there was really no real change in the rates. But uh, these were good results that were fading over time, and a lot has been made of this, that, oh, that the data wasn't good, or their interpretations of it wasn't good, but it might have been a reducing effect. Now, they didn't understand this sort of evolutionary idea that this guy came up with, 35, 36 years later, but rather something that had an effect that faded over time because they maintained the same nutritional deficiencies that led to criminal behavior in the first place. Uh, This is really similar to a recent um, study that they did give omega-3 fatty acids to prisoners, violent criminals, who calmed down from just having a better diet. And there's this idea that a lot of criminality might actually stem from a really lousy diet and the way your body builds itself and the neurotransmitters it creates, the, the, the cell walls and all these sorts of things that happen. Well, it turns out that endocannabinoids are formed from omega-3 fatty acids. That was really easy to find. And the effect is quite dramatic. You can change your diet and your body's own cannabinoids will change their ratio in your blood. And it will affect your ability to deal with what uh, adds an anti-inflammatory and other kinds of regulatory functions of the body. And that's why cannabis and omega-3 fatty acids look like they do almost the same thing, because they do. Uh, cannabis is a little bit more nutritionally sound or, or a, a bigger chunk of what you need than the omega-3 fatty acids because you don't have to build it. Um, and in fact... Uh, where is it? Pigs supplemented with EFAs, which are these uh, uh, fatty acids, actually not only had more endocannabinoids, but had more monoamines in the frontal cortex. Who's heard the word monoamine? 
Almost everybody in this room should have. How about monoamine oxidase? <coughs> ah, starting to hit. Monoamine oxidase is something that breaks down monoamines. This is why DMT is not orally active. We have monoamine oxidase in our belly, and so we take it, and it breaks DMT down. That makes DMT and serotonin and all these other neurotransmitters monoamines. So having more omega-3 fatty acids in your diet creates more of these neurotransmitters. And um, so there's this relationship to diet, neurotransmitters, psychedelics, which may be involved in the way the body regulates itself, the way it builds itself, and uh, regulates itself. So these ideas are, again, like I said, it's starting to weave together a little bit more. There might be real biological changes, even though it just seems on the surface that psychedelics are working in a psychological way. And uh, a good example of this sort of interleaving and interweaving is ayahuasca, or not ayahuasca, sorry, Ibogaine uh, drug therapy or addiction therapy where you get a deep psychological experience. Um, the reports tend to be, you know, oh, I see what the, my habit is doing to my mom. You know, that makes me feel really bad and I'm aware of why I'm doing it. And that kind of sort of years of therapy stuff, it's coming out. But it also seems to block your <coughs> biological craving for opiates. And on top of that, it seems to do something in your brain which looks like, to me, it is allowing near instantaneous habit formation. So every time you do something, your brain says, okay, you did that. If you do it once or twice, it goes away. If you do it again and again and again, it's like a circuit board and the wire gets thicker and thicker. And it's harder to unplug. This is habit. And as you know, if you start practicing a musical instrument or whatnot, your, the more and more you practice, then the more likely you will just go to practice and just do it. The more you're in the habit of reading uh, every week for your class assignments, the more likely you will do it every week. And the less likely you do it, the less likely you'll get these good habits. So habit formation seems to be a neurological uh, as a, well as a, a, a psychological formation. It has to do with networks, brain networks, as far as some people think. And so Ibogaine seems to do that the way your brain wires itself, a very mechanical process, a very psychological process, as well as another uh, mediating biological process, which is the uh, uh, lack of addiction. Now, here's a funny concept. Um, and this is sort of going into how we might use these things and, and, and then the role they may play in our society. There's this guy, Antonovsky, back in 1979, came up with a concept. I'm sorry for the jargon, but it's out there. It's called salutogenic or salutogenesis. This means the formation of beneficial behaviors or health. And Antonovsky was really interesting. Um, he decided, he, he studied um, survivors, Auschwitz survivors, uh, um, and... Why did some thrive and others didn't? 
And instead of looking at what, at the time, your general sort of medical model, which is still quite strong in, in, in the main way of approaching things, uh, pathogenesis or the, the, the pathology, where does the pathology come from and let's fix that. He said, well, why did some people do better? Why are some people healthy as opposed to why are some people sick? It's the opposite point of view. And in fact, he said, by simply dealing with the disease process, why are people sick? We get rid of the sickness, but we don't necessarily make them healthy. And health is it a different thing entirely? And he wanted to know, how do we make people healthy? And so he came up with this concept of salutogenesis. And one of the strong measurements for this was a sense of coherence, that your life is coherent. It makes sense. Everything fits together. If it does, no matter if you're broke and starving or you're rich and you know eat whatever you want, if you feel like there's coherence in your life, you're more likely to be healthy than somebody that thinks there's some chaos, problems, they don't have social networks, the coherence is lost. And this is not just uh, in terms of psychosocial coping, but rather, um, let me see, uh, weak uh, SOC or uh, sense of coherence was associated with Increased incidences of sick leaves for women, an increased risk of myocardial infraction, fancy word for heart attack, for men in white-collar occupations, increased all causes of mortality, which is dying, and a poor subjective state of health, which means how you felt about how healthy you were. So if you weren't coherent, it could kill you. Whereas uh, the opposite is... Uh, if people who had the strong sense of coherence had fewer of these problems. And so this was became his uh, big thing. Now, basically, the idea is that salutogenesis enhances health by improving physical, mental, and social well-being. It's integrating all these things, and he's trying to figure out what does that mean. There was one study that said, well, the more money you had, the more uh, of this uh, social coherence you had. Um, in that particular study, it doesn't play out. It's not socioeconomic, but in that particular case, it was. Um, now, if we start looking at the subjective uh, ayahuasca experiences, you start seeing this idea of more coherence, which has biological effects as well as the, the neurotransmitter stuff. It was, becomes a generalized resistance resource. In other words, you feel like you can cope with things. And remember I said with the folks using ayahuasca regularly, did objectively seem to be able to cope with changes in their environment very well. And uh, so this ayahuasca seems to be enhancing sense of coherence on top of enhancing your neurotransmitters, reducing your nutritional costs for those things, especially in uh, poor diet situations. And um, so this seems to have something to do with it. Now, on top of this, so it's not just ayahuasca. Again, I want to pull it away from ayahuasca. Many of you probably heard of Roland Griffith's <laughs> mysticism uh, experiment with psilocybin, which was a, a sort of a update of Walter Pankey's um, Good Friday experiment where you... Uh, Panky did. He was a study of Leary or student of Leary's, 
he um, gave a bunch of seminary students psilocybin and sent them to church to see if they had a mystic experience. <coughs> um, it's an interesting study, actually. It's, it's quite good. It's well done. It was an attempt at double, uh, double blind, but uh, missed on a couple of places. Well, Roland Griffiths... Oh, by the way, Dob, Dobkin, or Doblins uh, went back and looked at this a few years later, another 30-year thing. And uh, he found that the, the uh, effects of increased sense of spirituality, and etc., all the mystic things, stuck with them for their life. And a lot of them said that that was the, one of the top five, if not the most important event of my life. Uh, the people who got it didn't get placebo. The placebo was niacin, which made people flush and, and feel really hot. Um, it's quite interesting because the ones who had the placebo thought they had the drug because they all felt hot and crazy while the other ones felt normal and then it switched. And so there's this really kind of wild sort of ride they all went on. Um, but the Griffith study found that um, you do, can enhance, or induce quite a strong mystic experience with um, psilocybin. And uh, this, what is mysticism? Mysticism is the sense of unity with a bigger purpose or a bigger thing than you. It could be called God. It could be called the oneness. It could be called ecology. Um, a lot of people model it in different ways, but a big mystical experience tends to have this idea of unity, which another word for unity is coherence. And so it would increase a sense of coherence, which allows you, drops your stresses, so you're not chewing up your neurotransmitters in the same way, um, adds to the neurotransmitters anyway, and creates this buffer area, uh, psychological <coughs> buffer area. And so this is another sort of thread that ties in to this idea of, of psycho, uh, psychological or uh, psychedelic medicine. Now, the last, I promise, crazy, crazy term this one's from way back in 1935. Gregory Bateson came up with this idea, schismogenesis. And this is very, again, jargony way of saying forces that drive a community apart. Okay? Schismogenesis can come in a different ways, and if they're not countered by uh, various means, they will drive a group apart. Uh, a, a symmetrical schismogenic forces would be like fans of different football clubs. They boast, mine's the best, Manchester all the way. No, Gillingham, you know. You got you know, people, they're irrational, but they start getting really bolstery and, and really like, no, mine's the best. Yours, you, you won, but ours is still the best, you know. And this is symmetrical because it's the same on both sides. And these types of forces can drive a group apart. Um, not necessarily, you know, uh, sometimes it is just play, in the group, but sometimes it lends, ends up with people with bricks upside the head. Um, complementary schismogenic forces are the example Bateson used in 35, mind you, very archaic time in the world, was the relationships between men and women, where men become tend to have a, a domineering type of behavior and a, a accumulating power sort of position, whereas women withdrew and became submissive under those uh, contexts. And that this force 
this idea of imbalance in power through socially mediated ways of behaving would drive them apart and what eventually led to a women's movement, uh, which became something of a complementary, <coughs> or a, a, a symmetrical rather. No, <laughs> we're going to get in your face too. Um, and these things in traditional societies will drive a community apart. And so you got a small Amazonian tribe, a couple hundred people, and these rifts just say, okay, that's it, I'm going to move away. And we become two villages. It's a little bit harder for us here. You can't just sort of be like, we'll be Britain number two. We try it, devolution, right? Uh, Scotland, Wales. But you're still under the nation state, and it's a little bit harder to do this. And so this puts somebody in uh, uh, what you might call a double bind situation. A double bind is damned if you do, damned if you don't, the catch-22. And in the use of psychedelics, we've got this problem. Those who use them and understand them intuitively understand that they're not bad for you. They can be if you used it you know, wrong or poorly or if you're a complete idiot and think you can fly and your friends say, yeah, you can. Um, but, you know, the vast majority of cases, nothing happens. It's, it's good for you. And then it has all this healthful stuff. The government, on the other hand, says, no, 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 no. It's really bad. It's going to kill you. It's going to make everybody absolutely insane. It'll end society as we know it. So you're damned if you do because you're going against the broader society. You're damned if you don't because you're lying against, you know, you're lying about what you intuitively know inside. And this is a force that would tend to drive a community apart, but we don't have somewhere to go. And this double bind situation leads to stressors and stuff that can lead to poor health. Um, so not only can these psychedelics be good for you and help you in health, uh, situations, but they can lead to stress, which can also help uh, do the opposite because of the way society is structured and these uh, schismogenetic forces. And so it becomes very important that while we engage in sort of the clinical ideas of psychedelic healing, the communities engage in much more integrative behaviors with the broader society which I'm trying through research and science, though every time I throw out science or somebody throws out science in that sort of uh, symmetrical behavior, they get all complimentary and say, yeah, but, you know, my kid went crazy. Um, so they change the rules. And so it becomes very difficult to mediate this schismogenic force in terms of psychedelic medicine. <coughs> so the healing needs to come at a higher level. And... This leads me to sort of to sort of talk about this 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 uh, 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 splitting force, which has to do with the biological citizenship I talked about earlier at the beginning of the talk. I told you I'd come back to it. Some of you forgot all about it. Now you have to deal with it. Um, the biological citizenship is kind of a schizogenic force, schismogenic force, in that you that's good. You if you uh, are sick, need to find me the funding, me and my nice, comfortable uh, lab, to find your cure, and you sort of fund chunk money to me. And um, 
that's very cynical. But it seems that the system is geared up in this way to sort of milk the victims for the medical research. And I don't think it's necessarily, you know, uh, uh, David Icke, nictating membrane lizardmen type plots against us. But, you know, government, even more so now, is wanting everything we do to have marketable, immediately marketable outcomes. Uh, uh, there have been a lot of weird talks about how they're going to restructure universities, some of which you've probably heard in the news. And so a lot of small but very horrible diseases and illnesses aren't money churners, right? So we don't study them, or there's not money coming in unless we, as the population, give it to them. So it's not invested in. Um, Now, this leads to the finding of medications that you can sell. And again, and again, and again. And you can see this sort of return for investment concept is one of the big strong forces against using plant medicines. I can grow them. I can grow them in England. I have a greenhouse. Um, Now, so if you have something that not only is somewhat effective and free, but makes you say, at the end of life, you know what? I don't have to make money for those guys who do research. I'm okay with the fact that I'm going to die. I'm going to live until I die. And I'm not going to worry about all that. Research funding dries up. Um, Also, you know, uh, uh, you don't have somebody coming for various other treatments, which are very expensive, and turn money again. And uh, in my most cynical phase, I even get down to the nitty-gritty about what's a drug and what's legal and illegal. And I've come to this sort of weird idea that uh, legal drugs are the ones that you're productive while you're on them. And you can take again and again, Prozac, caffeine. Whereas the ones that might lead to ultimately more productive behavior, but while you're on them, so you can't have them all day long, don't make you necessarily productive. You're not going to do a very good job in the factory tripping you know, balls off and uh, you know, lose your arm in the thing, you know? Uh, but it, the overall changes in health, less sick days and stuff might be ultimately profitable even. But you can't have somebody taking it again and again and again and again and again and maintaining that sense or that, that productivity while they're on it. It's a very cynical point of view uh, that I've come to looking at all this sort of stuff. But so these are things we need to get into and think about in reevaluating our ideas of healing to address these forces that drive the market against healing and that drive people against doctors and drive people who want to do something versus the people who don't want you to do it. And the healing that we can do through this process needs to take into account all of these broader social forces that are out there. Next chapter, maybe in a few months, I'll have the data from people who actually take these things and talk about them as medicine or healing, and I can tell you more about how they experience it. Uh, Many of them will have biological concepts, and many will have more mystical, spiritual, illness-type concepts. I hope to find a nice variety of fun stuff to talk about. Um, So I'll fill this out uh, at that point, and I won't sound like a white coat clinician uh, next time uh, when we have a conference that uh, Dave might want to tell you about. But other than that, I'm done.
You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. You know, uh, as I was listening to Cameron speak just now and then heard his announcement about his ongoing research, it really gave me a good feeling that the psychedelic community has at long last found some permanent footing in our societies. As you know, uh, psychedelics were driven completely underground in the 70s, and uh, all research into their properties essentially came to a halt for several decades. But uh, gradually things have begun to pick up lately, and uh, not a moment too soon, I should add. As you uh, no doubt know, both Sasha Shulgin and Myron Stolaroff have been hospitalized recently, and while they are both at home now, they uh, still have some physical challenges ahead of them. So, uh, while we are very saddened by the fading away of some of our elders, uh, you know, the women and men who kept the torch alive during the really dark years, well, uh, we and our elders, I think, uh, should all be very heartened to see young women and men that, like the, those at the uh, University of Kent who are now building on the foundation that has been laid for us by uh, those great elders, and uh, so the great work continues, and uh, the spirits of the ancient alchemists are stirring once again. And should you want to get in touch with Cameron Adams yourself, you can reach him directly via email at capital C period, capital L period, Adams, that's all essentially with no spaces, C period, L period, Adams, at kent.ac.uk. And uh, he's also on Facebook, in case you want to connect with him there. And uh, in case you can get to Kent this coming April, that's April 2nd and 3rd of 2011, there's going to be a psychedelic conference being held there with the support of MAPS and uh, our friend Amanda Fielding. The conference is titled Breaking Convention, a multidisciplinary conference on psychedelic consciousness. And uh, I'll put a link to their website where you can keep up with the lineup of speakers as they're confirmed. So, great work there, Cameron and friends. Uh, I hope you'll send us some recordings from your conference for us to share here in the salon. And I'm pretty sure that'll happen, so stay tuned. If I wasn't pressed for time right now, there are a couple of things I'd like to expand on from Cameron's talk, but let me instead just give you one headline here, and that is to recommend, very highly recommend, that you read a copy of Bruce Lipton's book, The Biology of Belief. And I think you'll find some amazing insights in that uh, that directly tie to some of the concepts that we just heard. Also, if I heard him correctly, Cameron mentioned something that sounded like schismogenesis or something like that, the concept of driving a group apart. Well, I think that's exactly what happened out here in California last month when Proposition 19, the bill to legalize cannabis, was defeated. While I was still trying to decide how to frame my own response to the defeat of Prop 19, I heard another podcaster give a short rap about it, and he said exactly what I was thinking, but he said it so much better than I could that I thought I'd play it for you right now. And uh, this is a short segment from Dope Fiend's podcast number 247, and that's uh, found at dopefiend.co.uk, number 247. And here's what he had to say. 
Now, of course, the whole Proposition 19 debate is well and truly dead and buried, but one person who stood out among the crowd and actually put the opposition's point of view to the dope tribe is Abu, who he fought a hard fight over at the forums and did actually, in the end, decide to go out and vote for Proposition 19, even though he didn't think it would do any good. And you've got to say, I guess he was right on that one, but at least he had uh, the courage to kind of stand up and go against what he'd been arguing for all along. And he sent in this email, he says, I was very pleased that you included my comments, even though I know you and most of your listeners are unlikely to agree. But I think you did an excellent job of treating my input with fairness and equanimity, and it deserves to be commended. I have found the Grow Report forums to be one of the better cannabis boards out there, and I really enjoy the podcasts, especially Zandor and Mrs. Z. If from time to time, however, I see an opportunity to raise the level of discussion, I hope you won't be offended if I express an opinion that might seem outspoken, given the context of the site and the community. If cannabis is ever to move from being illegal globally, the first thing that its consumers should do is make sure that they are behaving like intelligent, responsible people and not presenting Exhibit A of the stereotypical image of the pothead so frequently perpetuated in the media. This is where your programme succeeds, in my opinion. So thanks again, Dope Fiend, and keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much, Abu. And I've got to say, I was reading a, a blog post by Jodie Emery last week about her participation in the Yes on 19 campaign and how wandering around Oakland she stumbled into a few crowds of anti-19 stoners if you see what I mean these are cannabis users cannabis growers some of them who were vocally against Proposition 19 and the points that they put forward and some of the points put forward in the comments on this blog post I'll put the link in the dopefiend.co.uk webpage were so closed minded you know they didn't even come close to Abu's arguments they were just selfish foolish and and you know totally unrealistic I mean some people were just saying look we're growers we're protecting ourselves that's our right we don't care about anybody else we want to make money from this stuff and that kind of attitude in a community that's supposed to be all about sharing and oneness togetherness is really quite distressing to me you know totally goes against what I think the cannabis community is all about and I wonder what kind of weed these people are smoking because it certainly doesn't seem to be having much of an effect But then there's people who are saying, of course we didn't vote for Proposition 19. We wanted Jack Harris' system, which, you know, allows you to have basically as much weed as you want and grow as much weed as you want and not pay any tax on it. And, you know, we're holding out until we get that. But that is absolutely absurd. I mean, what planet are these people living on? It's like saying... I won't vote for lower taxes because I'm waiting until there are no taxes at all. You know, you've got to work within the parameters of the society in which we exist. And for these people, I mean, I, I wonder, you know, if they've ever come face to face with the real harms done by the war on drugs to human beings. You know, they must be living in cloud cuckoo land because there are real people out there who have done nothing more then use a herb that grows naturally on this planet for their own recreation 
and they're in jail for it. They've given up their liberty. They've given up their status as a contributing member of society. They've given up their lives. And that is disgusting. And anything we can do to stop that happening, I think, should be done. So what if we have to pay a bit of tax? We have to pay tax for so many things in life. That is part of what's called a functioning society, really. I don't have an issue with tax. You know, if, if, if my putting some money into the pot means that people who get in trouble are able to get legal aid or people who get in trouble are able to get a bit of money to help them, you know, before they find their next piece of work or our dustbins are, are taken away on time or, you know, our, our local government is run, you know, in some sort of fashion. I'm not saying it's perfect. Of course it's not. But, you know, we need some sort of a system in place. And it, it, it can't be anarchy. It just wouldn't work. And so while we're within this system, we have to play by their rules to some extent. And if we're going to get cannabis legalized, it has to be within some sort of framework that applies to this society. Anyway, that debate's over and done with. We'll see what happens in 2012. But I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to Abu for standing up to some robust uh, opposition from the Dope Tribe. Well, thank you for that, Dope Fiend. As I said, I couldn't have said it better myself. So, how about it, growers, medical marijuana people, and the overall cannabis community? What do you say that uh, we try to get on the same page now? But, as I said in my personal blog about the uh, defeat of Proposition 19, well, screw politics and support your neighborhood grower. But, enough negativity from me. Uh, let's end on a really happy note. And uh, that's the fact that Bruce Damer has backed up the entire collection of podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon onto the Internet Archive at archive.org. This was a really monstrous job, and it took a lot of time to get done, so we all owe Bruce a great big thank you. And one of the reasons I think this was so important, uh, if we are really going to preserve these recordings, is that besides being backed up on three continents, uh, that going forward, as audio formats come and go, the archive will continue to make them available in whatever the dominant audio and video formats are at the time. Also, uh, to ensure that even long after I'm gone, these talks and workshops will still be available, the Internet Archive is uh, probably the safest place to store this material uh, in a way that's still accessible to uh, anyone who's interested and at no cost. And uh, I put a link to the archive on our program notes page, but you can also find it by going directly to archive.org and searching on Psychedelia. That's P-S-Y. C-H-E-D-E-L-I-A, Psychedelia Collection. And that will take you to a page that uh, begins uh, by saying, Welcome to Psychedelia. Three organizations are joining forces on this new collection called Psychedelia. The Psychedelic Salon Podcast, the Timothy Leary Archives, and the Terrence McKenna Project. These three working groups have teamed up to create a superb public and permanent archive of audio and some video resources surrounding the psychedelic experience and thinking that has uh, uh, continued to shape the mind of humanity. While up to now, uh, all of this uh, has actually been Bruce's effort, 
Over time, we hope to engage our fellow saloners to contribute to this archive as well. As Bruce envisions it, the Psychedelia Collection is meant to grow into the largest collection of all things psychedelic, voice, video, art, writing, and thinking from all ages. And uh, should you have any audio or video material in digital format that you think would be suitable for adding to this collection, I would uh, encourage you to contact Bruce about it directly, and uh, he'll help you get it into the collection. And the best way to uh, contact Bruce is via the contact button on his website at damer, D-A-M-E-R, damer.com. And you'll be hearing more about some plans that Bruce and I have for future salon podcasts and uh, of ways to get our fellow saloners involved, uh, more involved as well. But uh, that'll have to wait for a week or so because I've got miles to go yet before I sleep tonight. But before I go, I, I do want to give one more quick shout-out, and that's to DJ Pecos the Cat, who uh, filled in for BB in her episode 39 podcast from BB's Bungalow. In that program, he featured some old-time American stoner music from the 1920s and 30s, and it did more to lift my spirits than all the holiday music I'll be hearing in the weeks ahead. So, hey, great playlist, Pecos. Uh, thanks for doing that. Well, that's definitely got to do it for now, and so... I'll close today's podcast by again reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find via psychedelicsalon.org. And if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, you can hear something about it in my novel, the Genesis Generation, which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>